0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Parables are interesting things. The word parable comes from two Greek words, para, meaning beside, and ballo, which means to throw. So basically, a parable is when you throw a couple of things together in order to make a comparison. Jesus was a master storyteller, and he often used this form of storytelling by using elements of everyday life to illustrate a more profound message, mostly about the kingdom that he was inaugurating. Sometimes Jesus would couch his parables in mysterious language that confused his hearers, but today's lesson from Matthew here is not one of those. He starts out very matter-of-factly. He says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. So far, so good, you might think. But for the Pharisees in the crowd, they recognize that Jesus is reaching back to a very disturbing parable From one of God's greatest Old Testament storytellers, Isaiah. In it, the prophet begins with an idyllic description of the perfect vineyard. He writes, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a vine that in it. Now, in both Jesus' and Isaiah's versions, this vineyard was ideally placed in the best location for growing grapes. The land was fertile, and it had been laboriously freed of stones and other impediments and was set up to be a perfect producer of the finest crop. No expense was spared, no limiting factor undealt with. There were protections from marauders and from wild beasts set in place. And there were these nice facilities to produce that finished product, wine. Everything that could have been done was done, and yet following the Isaiah story, it continues, it yielded wild grapes. Now, at this point, Jesus' parable deviates from Isaiah, but let's follow Isaiah first to his conclusion, the one that the Pharisees were so troubled by. The grape harvest that the owner of the vineyard was hoping for had turned out to be a disaster. So Isaiah turns the mic over to his beloved. And now, O habitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Then now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. See, the the men of Judah had been ordained to be fruitful. But at the time of Isaiah, they were anything but. The nation of Israel had already been overwhelmed by the Assyrians by this time. And it would be only a matter of time until the southernmost kingdom, Judah, would be torn apart by Babylon. Even so, God still had hope for Judah, for the Messiah was scheduled to come from that tribe. So let's tie this ancient parable with the one that Jesus is sharing. The master of the house, as well as Isaiah's beloved, is the Lord of hosts. The vineyard represents the house of Israel, and the cream of the crop are the men of Judah. In Isaiah's parable, the fruit that God wants after all of God's tender ministrations turned out to be worthless. Wild grapes, which are bitter and ill-suited for making wine, just as Judah and the rest of Israel, for that matter, had shown a disappointing habit of wandering away from God, following other lowercase gods instead of the one who had nurtured, protected, and sustained them. When Jesus came onto the scene, he changes this worthless wild fruit into a bountiful harvest, or he, he works to do that. You know, a harvest that would be soon lost if not for the ministrations of his workers. So now in Jesus' version, the owner of the vineyard is denied the fruit that belongs to him. These wicked tenants withhold it. And they subvert all of it for their own use in a most dastardly fashion as it says, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat them, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants more than the first and they did the same to them. These The ones that the master entrusted his precious vineyard to are the religious leaders of Israel, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, and the Pharisees. They were put in place to nurture God's chosen people, to bring them up and instruct them in the ways of the Lord. They were given all the tools needed to do this, and God trusted them to perform. What did they do? Well, if you know the history of Israel, it's all there. They were given freedom as well as God's trust. But they used that freedom to misappropriate God's gifts, reject his prophets, the prophets who were represented in this parable by the servants. And now this is where Jesus bores in on the ones who God had entrusted his vineyard to. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. At this point in Jesus' ministry, his claim to be the Messiah was a pretty much open secret, one that the chief priests and elders were planning to use against Jesus when given the opportunity. So this identification with the son was just another provocation, especially as he continued with, But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. See, this collision course was plain. Jesus knew that he was going to be figuratively thrown out of the vineyard, literally into the arms of Roman executioners. So he asked all of his hearers what the day of reckoning would bring by asking, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? It's a good question, huh? Well, the Pharisees were so caught up in the moment that they blurted out the obvious answer, for it was what always happened to bad tenants in their day. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. He could have piled on condemnation at that point, but instead Jesus said to them, have you never read this in the scriptures? That's a rabbinic come on that, that he would use from time to time. But he read this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So don't you remember that, he's asking? Of course they had heard that. Because that was an integral part of the great Hosanna, Psalm 118, that was chanted at the high point of the Feast of Tabernacles during the ceremony of the water drying. The key part goes like this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then they conclude with that great hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. That last part is what gives the great hosanna its name. And it's it's both a reminder and a plea to those spiritual leaders, a reminder that the Lord has promised salvation to them and a plea to grab onto that Hosanna before it's too late. He goes on, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You know, the the world looks at words like these from the Bible, and they can only see the condemnation written there. And also, maybe, attribute a certain self-righteous glee to us believers that, you know, these Pharisees are getting what's coming to them. But... I urge you to think of these words in the way that God meant them. It was, most assuredly, a warning, but one given in anguish over the pending, yet totally avoidable consequences. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, to turn them away from the path of destruction and toward that narrow path that leads to salvation. So hear the pain in those words, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Even so, he immediately follows with some good news and given to a people producing its fruits. Jesus is saying, if you are a fruitful follower, the kingdom is yours. He concludes with an image drawn from the Psalms and two Old Testament prophets, Isaiah again and Daniel, he takes that stone that was rejected from, psalm, from the psalm and ties it to a couple of messianic prophecies. Isaiah wrote this. And he will come become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. And then there's this image taken from the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had about the downfall of all the earthly kingdoms that was revealed in the book of Daniel. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold altogether were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. You see, the rock that is Jesus can become either a sanctuary for those who trust in him. It becomes the very kingdom of God that fills the whole earth. Or it can be a stone of stumbling that shatters the earthly kingdoms and their corruption and brings down those who struggle against the introduction of that heavenly kingdom. But as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, and taking another verse from Isaiah in the process, In a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In the end, Jesus anticipates a great harvest, one to be celebrated with him in his everlasting kingdom, where there will be no more doubt or pain, but instead only unending joy and peace. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And let us also pray for those who have yet to taste the sweet, sweet fruits of salvation. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.